welcome to the Nurse and Midwife Support Podcast, Your Health Matters. I'm Mark Aiken, the podcast host. I'm the Stakeholder Engagement Manager with Nurse and Midwife Support, and I'm a registered nurse. Nurse and Midwife Support is the national support service for nurses, midwives and students. The service is anonymous, confidential and free, and you can call us anytime you need support. 1-800-667-877 or contact us via the website nmsupport.org.au. On this episode of the Your Health Matters podcast, we will discuss clinical supervision and how it can support nurses and midwives to navigate, understand and reflect on the complexities of their work and impact on their health and well-being. We will discuss all things related to clinical supervision and its importance to nurses and midwives. I'm delighted to say my guest today is Julie Sharrick, registered nurse and nurse consultant mental health and clinical supervisor. Welcome and hello, Julie. Hi, Mark, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure, Julie. I'm really excited to be talking to you today because I've got a keen interest in clinical supervision and I want to share all things related to clinical supervision with our listeners. So, Julie, would you please tell our listeners about yourself and your experience with clinical supervision? So, Mark, I uh, first had an interest in supervision somewhere during my mental health training. So I started nursing quite a while ago in 1977 and I did hospital-based training, and I worked in uh, general nursing for 10 years. I did a little stint in intensive care uh, and then always wanted to do mental health nursing. So I did my psychiatric nursing training at Royal Park, and uh, I I was trying to remember the other day when I first ever heard of clinical supervision. Do you know I can't remember? But I do remember starting to attend some I guess, workshops and and education sessions probably in the early 90s around clinical supervision. But I guess going back a long way, I've always had a a keen interest in nurse welfare. And I remember in my third year, and I was reminiscing with one of my general nursing buddies the other day, that I trained in Geelong and we had this wonderful director of nursing, Marjorie Taylor. And for some reason, she picked myself and my friend out to go to this seminar workshop in Ballarat, it was at Sovereign Hill, and it was on, well, I don't know what the topic was on, but I do remember there was a nurse counsellor from the Royal Children's talking about supporting nurses, and I remember thinking, what a great idea, and it piqued my interest. I'd love to ask Marjorie Taylor what she saw in my friend Suzanne and I, but uh, she's no longer with us, so I can't ask that question. But then I was um, thinking about this interest in nurse welfare. And when I did my intensive care training, I also did an assignment on stress in nursing. So, you know, the theme of nurses and and nurse welfare sort of permeates my career, even though I didn't aim to end up being a clinical supervisor. I didn't even know what it was back then. So then I did my mental health nursing and worked in mental health until I finished clinical practice in 2017. My area of specialty was mental health nursing in the general hospital, so consultation liaison psychiatry or many other names, a mental health nurse consultant to general nurses. Uh, We didn't have midwives, but there's uh, consultants to midwives as well. And we work with nurses and midwives and general hospital staff to look after people with comorbid mental health problems in the general hospital. So again, I was exposed to the challenges that nurses and midwives face in in the day-to-day work and started to think about clinical supervision for those folk as well. And so then when I finished clinical practice, I already had a very small private practice in clinical supervision, and I expanded that. And now I also educate people in clinical supervision. I'm part of a a training program with Paul Spur and clinical supervision consultancy. So I provide supervision and I also teach supervision. Thanks, Julie. What an interesting and rich career you've had and interest uh, in clinical supervision. Thanks so much for sharing that. You mentioned a, a nurse buddy as part of this podcast is part of our newsletter on support for nurses and midwives. And we're showcasing as part of that 
Friendships in Nursing. And we're launching our story competition this year, which will be about stories of friendship in nursing. So we'll talk more about that later. But have you got a particular friend or buddy who's a nurse, Julie, who's supported you? And would you like to give a shout out to them? Oh, look, well, I'm, the person I'm talking about is Suzanne Higgins, who's a perinatal and infant mental health nurse. But I just want to give a shout out to my my nurse training school, which was School 177 of Geelong Hospital. So I can't even pick one out because we still meet up today regularly at our anniversary time, which is the 7th of February, 1977. So we're, we're clicking over on the years and I just want to give a shout out to them because we used to support each other all the way through our training and still support each other to this day. And I think I might put to them about the idea of writing a story because we have a story to tell. Absolutely, Julia. Nurses are great. Nurses and midwives are great storytellers. And um, it's a competition. So there'll be a prize for the story that connects mostly with judges. So more on that later. And thanks for sharing that, Julie, and the shout out. Julie, what is clinical supervision and why is it important for nurses and midwives? Well, the way I think about clinical supervision is that it's a structured relationship that's really based on adult learning theory, in particular reflective learning, which has been around now for centuries, really. It probably dates back to the early early scholars of our our, um, civilization. But Dewey introduced the idea of reflective learning in a more modern context. So it's based on reflective learning and adult education. So that idea that you have a need to learn, you need to make sense of something. And the relationship, I guess, is based on what we know from communication skills and advanced relationship building. So it's a professional relationship that's got professional development at its core and it ref- and really focuses and reflects on the work that we do. So it's work-related relationship, not a personal relationship like counselling. But sometimes I guess people do say it feels a little bit like counselling, but the difference, the big difference, is it's focusing on work-related material. Thanks, Julia. And why is that important? Well, I guess the thing for me that I, I mean, of course I don't, I can't go back through life and not have supervision and see what the impact would have been. But I believe that I could not have done the work I did for as long as I did without regular clinical supervision. And what's interesting in, I guess, the twilight of my career, the things that niggle me, the memories that still unsettle me sometimes are predominantly before I had supervision. So way back when I worked in ICU, I still have some, you know, memories that I I don't like having about that work. And I didn't obviously have clinical supervision and were extraordinarily poorly supported in in, in the intensive care environment with the challenges that we faced. So I like to think that supervision has helped me stay in the work, uh, but more importantly than that, in the work when there's uh, really tough things that you have to think about and process and respond to, like the suffering, you know, working in the general hospital where people were experiencing life-threatening, life-changing illnesses or accidents or whatever, sitting with their suffering and being able to attend to their experience without getting caught up in my own concerns or worries or reactions or overreactions. It it it, it meant that I could be more choiceful in my interventions with with the patients and with my colleagues. Uh, I wasn't as reactive. I didn't dwell on or, or take the suffering home with me quite as much. I had a place where I could go and talk about the tough things and the the achievements as well. Supervision's not only about the tough challenges that you want to nut out, but the the achievements and the things that went well and then understanding what went well and thinking, ah, I can use that again. And then you get in a similar situation in the future and and it comes into your mind and think, ah, I could try that this time. It's just more, it allows for a more thoughtful interaction with people. 
Yeah, you make some very good points, Julian. I think that the importance of reflecting on our practice and our experiences is so important. And not only, you know, how we may have done things differently, but I really connect with the importance of celebrating a job well done or celebrating what you've achieved and how you contributed to the quality care of um, people that you're caring for. So some really great points. Um, Julie, in my blog, A Difficult Year 2020 and the Power of Reflection, that's on the Nurse and Midwife Support website, I wrote, clinical supervision is a formal process that aids supported reflection, which you've talked about. It is one tool underutilised by nurses and midwives to support and enable reflection. Clinical supervision is a process of professional support and learning in which nurses and midwives are assisted to develop their practice through regular time spent in reflective discussion with experienced and knowledgeable colleagues trained in providing clinical supervision. In 2019, the Australian College of Mental Health Nurses, Australian College of Midwives, Australian College of Nursing released a joint position statement recommending clinical supervision for all nurses and midwives, irrespective of their specific role, area of practice and years of experience. Julie, could you speak to that joint position um, statement and the key elements? Sure. Uh, That position statement... I have to say it's, I'm very proud of it. I led that working party, but I have to acknowledge the wonderful colleagues from the, all the colleges that I worked with in developing that. And the College of Mental Health Nurses had had a position statement for a while and we were sort of looking at it and we'd done, I have to admit, probably a bit of a half-hearted joint position statement with the ACN, not because we didn't feel it was important, but we just didn't have the resources at the time. And so when I looked at that, I thought, no, we we really need to think about this and do this better. So myself and a colleague from the board, Tom Ryan, the board of the College of Mental Health Nurses, and I was on the board of the College of Mental, uh, Australian College of Mental Health Nurses at the time, put it to the board that we actually invite the Australian College of Midwives as well. And so it was at I think a little bit ambitious, but we we managed to do it. And I was so pleased. I was able, because I'd semi-retired, to put a lot of work into it. And the the minds that then came together to think about this were fantastic. And I do want to acknowledge those people. Uh, And they are acknowledged on the inside page of the position statement. So the position statement is available on each of the college's websites and also a poster that goes with it that you can print off preferably in a slightly larger uh, format that may be an A3, not an A2, and you can put it up in your workplace. And it shows the key components of what clinical supervision is. And central to that is the trusting professional alliance. And that is the relationship that develops between you and your clinical supervisor. Remembering that it also can be done in a group, but getting developing the same level of trust in a group can sometimes be a bit more of a challenge, but when that happens, it's magic because you've got the whole group there supporting each other and the wisdom that comes from group supervision is extraordinary. So it can be individual and group or all group. Uh, And I I tend to provide individual uh, partly because of practicalities. And I also think that you, you need to select your group carefully. I guess going through the position statement, then what we've got is the trusting professional alliance at the core, and then we've got some key components of what leads to effective supervision. Uh, And I'm not sure, Mark, do you want me to go through those? I think that would be really interesting, Julie. This is absolutely fascinating, and I know our listeners will be all ears, so please. Okay. All right. So one of the important things, and these are no more or less important than each other. I'll just read them, refer to them in in the order that I get to them really. But the important thing is that it's conducted in a, with a regular, um, regularly, I guess. It's private and protected time. So it isn't having a chat in the coffee shop. Not that I'm saying chatting in the coffee shop's not a good thing, but it's not a confidential space. 
You can't talk about client work in a coffee shop. And it's not in a park, although I have to say some uh, people have had to be quite innovative during lockdown and, and parks were a legitimate way to meet up and, and talk while they exercised during lockdown. So generally, though, you would do it in a private protected space that's away from in, uh, interruptions and away, away from the practice setting enough so that you're not getting pulled out or interrupted or so forth. Uh, and that helps create the safe space. Another important aspect of, is, of it is that it's confidential, and that's confidential in within the realms of professional and legal boundaries because we know there's mandatory reporting. And if a supervisee brings up something that I'm a bit concerned about the practice, I'll raise it with them. And I have never at this point in time had to go and say, look, I have to take this somewhere else. But if I was to say that I would support the supervisee to take it somewhere else or report on it. So it's not absolute confidentiality, but the important thing is I don't go talking to the, the supervisee's boss about what they talk to me about in supervision. So I think that's the really important part, that it's really a confidential space for them to talk about the challenges and their vulnerabilities within, within their work, and that also contributes to the trust. We need to think about cultural safety and respecting diversity. And the relationship takes a commitment from both the supervisee and the supervisor. So the supervisee has some responsibilities as well as the supervisor. We've got effective communication at the core, feedback, and I mean feedback about how the supervision is going, evaluating that uh, relationship and, and where it's going uh, and how it's progressing is important. We have made it very, very clear within the position statement that it is not provided by your direct line manager. Your direct line manager has a responsibility to provide operational supervision or managerial supervision but or direct line reporting, however it's called, but it is not clinical supervision. And I might mention here, Mark, uh, that the term clinical supervision I know is tricky, but we've used that term because that it's nearly 100 years old and we can't find a better name for it at the moment. Uh, and I like it because it gives you supervision. You oversee your work with a trusted uh, other. And in New Zealand, they talk about the bird's eye perspective where you hover over your work and take a step back from it and look at, look at it from a different perspective with a trusted other. So I think if we can get over the difficulties we have with the term clinical supervision, we'll just use it like a lot of other funny terms that we use in health that really have a strange sort of meaning. So we've stuck with the term clinical supervision. Uh, so the importance of regularity I've mentioned, but it, it needs to be predictable and consistent. You know, that you, you get into a, a, a way of operating. So for example, I have a process where I, I acknowledge and welcome someone to the space and then focus, what, what, what have you brought to supervision or what would you like to focus on today? And usually the supervisee brings something and is expected to bring something, but sometimes they come and they go, you know what, I'm all over the place. I don't know where to start. So that's what you work with. But you have a bit of a structure and John Driscoll uh, talks about what, so what, now what? So the important thing is it's not just a talk fest. It's about having a goal or some sort of purpose to the session, trying to understand what it is that's concerning or is to be explored, why that matters, and then what now? What am I going to do about that now? What are the next steps? And sometimes it's simply to say, you know what, I understand that better and that's really helpful and I think that's all I need now. Or there might be some actual steps somebody chooses to take as an outcome of the supervision. So it's not a meandering conversation that goes nowhere. And I'm not sure if I can use this terminology. It's not a bitch fest either. It is a place to vent a little bit, but it's not just whinging. Maybe a whinge fest might be a better way of, of saying it. You know, it's not a place just to whinge and moan. It's about taking some steps to change the situation or think about the situation differently. It's important to choose your supervisor because you need to build 
a relationship. Some organisations do say, this is your supervisor. I'm not, I don't agree with that. Sometimes an organisation will say, these are your choices of supervision and you choose. That's what I would prefer. And I've always chosen my own supervisor and paid for it myself so that I can have control over who I have supervision with. Supervision facilitates the supervisee to monitor themselves and reflect on their practice, be accountable to themselves. And when you actually speak to another, you, one of my supervisees um, says it holds me to account. Like I, I, by saying it out loud to you, I know that I need to follow through. It, it's sort of a way of firming up a commitment to myself to take some action about something. Uh, it's provided by professionals who have undertaken training, and this is where we struggle because we don't have a lot of training, training or good training that runs for long enough available to us, but that's changing. And supervisors need to have their own regular supervision of their supervision. It's an opportunity to talk about the realities and challenges of, uh, of work and, uh, as I said before, the rewards and to be heard and understood and attended to by another professional is a real, it's a pleasure to, to, to do, but it's a real gift to the supervisee uh, that, that helps them feel validated and supported in the work that they do. Uh, we know that through supervision, people develop knowledge and confidence with, uh, within their practice and it's strengths pro focused. That doesn't mean we don't challenge uh, you know, people come and pay for supervision with me. They don't pay to just be validated. They want a little bit of challenge in there. And, and as a supervisor, I need to think about where I challenge and where I support. Uh, and so that's important. And, and the supervisor needs to be able to think about the practice skills and have some understanding of what's required uh, in the, the supervisee's practice but I also don't, can't be an expert in everything. And I, I take, you know, I like to hear the supervisee to explain their practice and what the expectations are in their own words. And finally, it, it's supported by an agreement. Now, whether you do a written agreement or a verbal agreement, I don't think it really matters. But the evidence, and there's no evidence to say that an agreement in and of itself makes for better supervision. What we do know is that goal-oriented and goal-directed supervision is received very well and positively received by supervisees. So supported uh, by an agreement that has things in it about how often you're going to meet, what, what your style is, the, the things about uh, confidentiality I mentioned earlier, and you review them regularly. So I tend to, you know, try and get the goals and agreement done within the first three sessions and then you know, review a little way down the track. And then I have a process where we check out how things are going towards the end of the year and regularly review how the supervision is going. So that was a very long answer to your question, Mark. Oh, Julie, wonderful. Uh, comprehensive and um, detailed. And if any nurse midwife or student listening was wondering about clinical supervision, they won't be wondering anymore. They've got all the information they need. So thank you very much. And given all that, Julie, and given the endorsement from those key organisations, peak bodies really, in nursing and midwifery, Australian College of Mental Health Nurses, Australian College of Midwives, Australian College of Nursing, I know the ANMF endorsed clinical supervision, I'm actually perplexed as to why clinical supervision is underutilised by nurses and midwives and how do you think we can support nurses and midwives to access it or to come on board? Well, I guess the, uh, the reason why we did the position statement was to try and harness some energy towards people receiving supervision because we know, you know, we're chewing up nurses and midwives faster than we want to, really, and you would well know that at your organisation and that nurses need support. And, and I think clinical supervision is one form of support, but there's many, many others. So why it's not taken up, and even in mental health nursing, it's not taken up to the extent we want. You know, I'm still a little perplexed as to why not, but I also understand it a little bit, and there's been a lot written about it as to why people don't take it up. And I think part of it's the name. I think people feel like 
you know, if you're under supervision, you're somehow not doing your job right or uh, that you need remedial work or you've got a problem. And, you know, as I say, is if I'm supervising a midwife, I'm not going to teach them how to deliver a breech baby or whatever it is, that, a clinical skill. But if that baby dies, I can support the midwife to process that and look at how they handled it and to learn for the future. So it's not about clinical teaching. It's, it's about really looking at the interpersonal uh, aspects of our work and the emotional labour of our work. And so I think the name is a problem. And I also don't think it's been promoted. I think Nurses and midwives are just expected to go on, get on with it. And that's what happened in my day. We just were expected to get on with it. We weren't supposed to melt down. There was this idea that you had to be professional, that you didn't get upset. Somehow you parked your emotions somewhere that, that I don't know where. Um, but we know that if we do that, if we suppress what we really feel, it's bad for us and it comes back to bite us. And we do know that. We've got evidence that uh, the emotional labour, some aspects of the emotional labour of nursing and midwifery do actually lead to burnout if they're not processed. So I think there is this idea of, you know, just get on with it, suck it up sort of thing. Maybe there's a sense that, you know, you have to be able to cope. Maybe also the type of personality that gets drawn to helping professions perhaps is not so good at looking after themselves and and you might have some thoughts about that around what you see in, in your work about how hard it is sometimes for nurses and midwives to let people know that they need some help so so there's some of my thoughts there's, there's probably some more aspects of clinical supervision as to why it hasn't been taken up but I think one last reason is it's been misused. The trust has not been established. I know years ago there was an expectation that the manager heard about what I did in supervision with the staff. She wanted to know what was discussed. And I said, no way, I'm not going to talk about that. And she was very affronted about that. So, you know, I think it has been misused. There's been breaches of confidentiality or people who haven't been trained in supervision, providing supervision that has been harmful. And I think that's a sad, a sad fact as well. In terms of how we promote it, the position statement is how we are trying to promote it. Um, we had lots of opportunities that were stymied by the good old COVID, but we produced the poster to present at conferences, and we have done, and we will continue to do so. Uh, it's free to download. We encourage people to download and print it up and pop it up in their, in their workplaces. We also have in Victoria the framework for supervision for mental health nurses across the state, which the Office of the Chief Mental Health Nurses promoted. And that aligns very nicely with the position statement. They're complementary to each other. And nurses and midwives are talking much more about clinical supervision and asking questions about it about this uh, professional support. So hopefully we're on a roll. Uh, I don't think there's any stopping um, you or the incredible work that clinical um, supervisors do, Julie. So bring it on, I say, and anything we can do to promote the importance of it, we will be absolutely doing. So um, we're all in and completely on board. And I would encourage any nurse, midwife or student listening to this podcast to really connect with the importance of clinical supervision, share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And indeed, if you'd like to talk about clinical supervision or any other issue you need support for, please contact Nurse and Midwife Support, 1-800-667-877 or via the website nmsupport.org.au, 24-7, Australia-wide, anonymous, confidential and free. So thanks, Julie. We'll be shouting this from the, the rooftops and um, it's so important for nurses and midwives to connect with this and its importance. Thanks, Julie. 
Julie, you're a member of the Australian Clinical Supervision Association that became an incorporated association in July 2014 with a management committee who plays an active role in the direction of the organisation. Would you please tell our listeners about the Australian Clinical Supervision Association and how nurses and midwives can access the services that it provides? Uh, so the Australian Clinical Supervision Association was set up by some a small group of very committed people, and I didn't join until a little while later. So I do want to acknowledge Paul Spur and his colleagues who uh, set this organisation up. And really it, it is committed to clinical supervision for all disciplines, not just nurses and midwives. So we're trying to encourage cross-discipline sharing of ideas around clinical supervision. And we had our first very successful conference in 2018 and we were planning for our second in 2020. And, of course, everyone will know what happened to that. When we're thinking about next year, we're hoping we'll be able to have our second conference. And I have to say it was one of the most energising conferences I've been to. We also have local member meetings that... Uh, at the moment, the Victorian local member meetings are not happening because we've got national webinars in lieu of the conference. So we've got a series of webinars that people can join. But we'll be resuming those local member meetings later on when there's not such a demand on our time for the, for the webinars. Because uh, we know people are busy, so you have to be quite selective about what you attend to uh, attend. And so the, the, the website is the Australian Clinical Supervision Association. It's currently just being revamped, so be patient with that. But there are some wonderful resources on, on the Australian Clinical Supervision website around things like agreements, how to find a supervisor. There's a, a small but growing database of clinical supervisors. We're getting quite a number of nurses and midwives trained as supervisors, and they're putting their shingle, so to speak, up there. So you'll see their profile and be able to contact them if you're interested in your own private supervision. Uh, and for people like me at the end of their career, it's a really nice way of staying in touch with the profession and giving back to the profession. So I'll encourage older and more experienced nurses who are perhaps coming to their twilight years that don't want to work full time, but want to give back a little bit to the nursing and midwifery professions that they might like to consider becoming a clinical supervisor. Uh, so that's something to think about as well. Thanks, Julie. Great information. You spoke a bit earlier about um, posing the question um, that I agree with as to why it is nurses and midwives don't reach out for support sooner rather than later and the importance of clinical supervision as an important form of support. And I think part of that, Julie, is that we haven't come from a culture or haven't created a culture where professional self-care is um, ingrained in us and is part of our toolbox, if you like, as professionals. So I know, Julie, you wrote a chapter, which I love, on professional self-care in mental health in nursing, fifth edition. Uh, and so um, I'll ask you to speak a bit about that, please. And what is professional self-care and what are the important elements? So th this was a great chapter to write. It was a new chapter in, a, as you say, the fifth edition. And Kim Foster, one of the editors, asked me to write this. And Kim uh, has been involved in uh, one of the podcasts. She's a, a guru, if you like, on resilience and, and so forth. So I was very honoured to write this chapter and I guess what I was saying earlier about my interest in, in the nurse and midwife welfare, I guess culminated in thinking about this chapter. So we wanted to think about it from a holistic perspective and uh, so we, we went through some of the challenges around nursing and midwifery practice. So we talked about how even though we might be carrying out physical tasks in the care of patients. We also use ourselves in our work. Mental health nursing talks about that therapeutic use of self, how we use ourselves and our own personality in developing our relationships and rapport with our patients and their kin and our colleagues, but, uh, but particularly our patients and our kin. So how we use ourselves in our work. When we do that, 
it takes a personal toll on us, of course, uh, but it's also very rewarding. So self-awareness and reflection is very, very important in terms of maintaining us ourselves as a therapeutic instrument. And I guess for me, clinical supervision is sort of like maintenance of myself as a therapeutic tool, if, if you like. And I can't claim uh, that idea. It was a, a mental health nursing student I heard present at a conference years and years ago who said, you know, you service your equipment as a general nurse you, or, or as a nurse, things like your, <coughs> pardon me, your thermometers or your blood pressure machines. To her, clinical supervision was actually providing service to herself as the therapeutic tool. So um, I think that is a really important component of uh, self-care. So in, in the process of working with the helping, in, in the helping professions, there's a concept of emotional labour that I'm not sure if that's been addressed in any of the podcasts, but I want to shout out to Frankie. Frankie won the midwife story. And she gave a lovely example of the emotional work involved in midwifery. And it's a, it's a great podcast, and I encourage people to look, look at that. But emotional labour was first thought of in the context of air hostesses back in the day when they were called air hostesses. And it was that work where air hostesses needed to put on the smiling face of welcome to fo- so that their customers felt cared for. So Hoschild looked at this and was intrigued about what was required to make this happen. So you can imagine the air hostess giving a hand to the businessman whose hand luggage is way overweight or oversized, trying to put it into the overhead compartment, feeling like she wants to throttle the businessman but smiling and saying, I'll help you with that, sir. Let me help you. There it is. That's okay. Take your seat, please. So that requires emotional labour. It requires work to put that face of caring on. And so there were, there's two concepts in emotional labour. One is that it's really actively creating an emotional response to a person so they feel cared for it or in the service of caring, which takes a lot of work. And that sort of emotional labour has been associated more closely with burnout. Whereas the, there's the other sort of emotional work where you really feel and connect with your patients, which is exhausting sometimes, but also the joy of the work. So it does uh, bring that joy. It's some, a person, I can't remember, the author called it emotionful work. Regardless, though, the emotional labour of nursing and midwifery needs to be acknowledged. And as I say, have a listen to Frankie's podcast and her story because she describes some of those challenges beautifully in her story. Now, unmanaged, that can lead to stress and burnout, compassion, fatigue, and so forth and so on. So... Supervision is one way of processing emotional labour, but so is peer support, collegiate chats. You know, when I lived in the nurse's home, we'd come back and we'd just chat about our day. You know, that's where going out for a coffee with your mates or the pub after work or whatever and and just connecting with your nursing and midwifery colleagues using the language of our work is so beneficial. However, if the wheels start to fall off, you you may need help, and that's where services like yours are so important. Uh, And I guess that's what I knew back there in my third year of nursing when I heard this counsellor talk about the nursing counselling role that she was in, that we needed, we need to have that service. And I first, it was during my ICU course, I first ever reached out to a counsellor for support. Uh, I learned something very painful about myself was that I didn't quit things. I was taught, no, once you start, you don't stop. And I'd started this ICU course and it nearly did me in. I didn't quit it. I probably should have, but I didn't quit it. But just the realising that I could quit if I wanted to helped me get through to the end of it. So I'm ever so grateful for that counselling support I received. Uh, So... It is hard to to reach out, and I think one of the things that I also have talked about in the chapter but also in supervision training 
is at some stage it's really important to consider what on earth brought you to nursing or midwifery. Now, some people say, oh, I just fell into it. Yeah, well, I'll say, yeah, but it didn't keep you in it. So usually there's stuff from our family of origin. You know, I was a nurse long before I was a nurse. You know, I had an interest in looking after others, and I understand that from my family of origin, which I won't bore you with, but it's important to reflect on. So there's a supervision book by Hawkins and Showett that talks about that part of clinical supervision is about why we become helpers and what maintains us in the work and what our vulnerabilities in the work are. So if you're someone who is a compulsive helper, you know, you need to keep an eye on that because you might give yourself away in the service of the work. So I think they're the sorts of things to reflect on, not only in supervision, but with your buddies. And then in the chapter, we talk about then all the different sorts of things in holistic self-care that uh, that are important. So I'm not sure, Mark, I've, I, as I said to you, I can talk about clinical supervision underwater with a mouth full of marbles. So um, tell me if um, you want me to go into the to the self-care strategies. Oh, Julia, I'm um, a captive audience, as I know our listeners will be. So um, um, I'm just loving your passion and your expertise. So please feel free to share that. Okay, don't give me too much encouragement, Mark. Uh, <laughs> I, so in, in the chapter, we talk about different aspects, and I won't go into them in detail, but I'll just mention what they are. And certainly, uh, you know, we on, on your website, you address a number of these issues. So there's work-life balance, which is very important. And there's some great uh, podcasts I've listened to where people have talked about how they sort of make some sort of delineation between their work day and their home day. I used to ride a bicycle to and from work and I loved it. And I used to have a little reminder that I used to ride past the MCG and I'd say to myself, if I'm not taking in the world outside and I've got to the MCG and all I've thought about is what I'm going to do at work, then stop it. Get out of yourself and breathe in the Yarra River, breathe in the MCG and the Melbourne skyscape. On the way home, if I got to the doggy park and was still thinking about work, i say, hang on a minute, what are you doing? Look at the dogs, look at the happy owners, look at everybody, take in the world. And it was my way of starting to putting, put a marker between home and work. And a lot of uh, people I talk to do that sort of thing. So that work-life balance is really important. That's just one example. Sleep, rest, exercise and diet, and we're our own worst enemies when it comes to that. And working shift work, it's very, very difficult to manage that. But there's some great literature and suggestions for nurses and midwives about how to manage that. Meaning-making is a, a psychological strategy that I think is important. If I couldn't make sense in, and give meaning to my work, I don't believe I would have lasted as long as I have. Having compassion for myself, recognising myself as a frail human being, a flawed human being, and being compassionate to myself about that has, has been a very important uh, component for me of, of self-care. We've got a section there on spiritual care, and I don't necessarily mean religion, but religion is an important part of, uh, of uh, self-care for some people. But spiritual care is a little bit about what about meaning making, what, what purpose I have in my life. And I'm not religious, but I believe in um, people. I, I love contributing and supporting people. So that gives my life meaning and it's my energy. But then balancing that with other things, the other thing that nurtures my spirit is skiing. So finding things that just help bring meaning to your, your life and your work is, is important as well. Uh, and I wanted to comment about uh, why nurses don't self-care. And uh, Paul Spur quotes uh, that we were born in the convent and raised in the military. The idea that both religious orders and the military have had strong influences on our our culture in nursing, and I wonder whether that 
because this idea of it being a vocation and a calling that you somehow have to put your needs last. And if you're the sort of person who looks after everybody else and you've been a compulsive helper since day dot, then you're going to be really vulnerable to not ask for help when you need it because you're supposed to be able to cope and everybody else is more important. So I just thought I'd mention that lovely quote. Thanks, Paul Spur. Mind-body practices, and they're certainly becoming more important. There's many, many mind-body practices such as yoga and tai chi and meditation and massage. I'm a big fan of massage too, where I go and have my massage, therapeutic massage, but also give myself a place to relax. Building resilience, and Kim Foster can talk about that uh, probably underwater with a mouthful of marbles as well. And resilience training is actually showing promise. And, and Kim talks about that, I think, in her podcast that she did for you a while back. And that's, that is showing promise. So it's not something you're born with. You can develop resilient practices as well. There's other aspects in the chapter we talk about is about having a growth mindset, always being interested in learning. If you're an early graduate, uh, looking at those graduate support programs, ongoing professional development, clinical supervision and reflective practices that we've talked about, sorting yourself out during career transitions. That, and I know there's been a podcast around career transitions as well that I think is a very, very good reflection on when we make these changes and the challenges that they bring but also the rewards. But having said all this, there's a lot of onus on the nurse and midwife. I want to stress that burnout and resilience are concepts that are, are not just from within the nurse or midwife. Uh, we have a responsibility to look after ourselves, but our work environments also have a responsibility as well. So resilience and burnout are in relation to the work context. So Burnout is not a failing of the nurse or midwife. It's a syndrome that develops when there's a mismatch between the demands of the work, uh, the supports or not within in the workplace and, and the demands and stresses interpersonally and personally for that nurse or midwife. So organisations cannot can no longer relinquish responsibility for creating supportive and safe environments for their nurses and midwives. And I really believe that very, very strongly. Um, so, and I'll do a little shout out to Jed Carney, who is the MP uh, for, oh, I've forgotten. It's got a new name. Sorry, yeah. Jed, I've forgotten. Yeah, your... the federal MP in, the federal um, MP in, in, in Victoria. Yeah, for yeah. Baxter, who was a nurse, who is a nurse. She's still a nurse, even though she's not practicing. And and she's very, very supportive and keen to make sure that nurses and midwives and all healthcare professions are supported in the work that we do. So uh, and she's very been very supportive advocate of clinical supervision during her time. So thanks, Jed. Uh, so I guess they're the main components of the chapter. Uh, and thank you again for promoting uh, the book. We're very proud of the book and the chapter. So uh, I think you've got the details of how people can access that and also, you know, let your library know uh, to add it to their collection as well. Oh, yeah, great points, Julie. Well, I reckon after the um, at the end of this podcast, people listening are going to rush out and order that book um, based on, on that wonderful overview and those uh, really important elements that you've outlined. But, so thanks, Julie. We'll put a link to where you can access that book from as part of this podcast. And I've just come up with an idea, Julie, I'm full of bright ideas, as um, people may know. <laughs> and uh, and um, what we will do as part of the story competition where you um, honour and write about your, um, your, your story about a nursing or midwifery friendship, we will make this book part of the prize for oh, that Oh, great story. idea. 
Yeah, so you can receive, uh, so, you know, make sure you get those entries in. You'll get information around how to enter as part of this newsletter on support for nurses and midwives. And um, we'll get those copies out to you once we announce the winners. So thanks very much, Julie. Wow, I reckon we could talk all day about this really important issue of clinical supervision. But unfortunately, we've come to the end of the podcast Julie, do you have any final words of wisdom or reflections that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I don't know if you've got any Harry Potter fans out there listening, but I just want to share that the wisdom of Harry Potter, I love it. And, you know, apologies to those who don't. And I I want to acknowledge uh, my uh, colleague, Naomi Riley, who likens clinical supervision to the Pensieve. And so those who know Harry Potter know that Dumbledore would put his thoughts into the Pensieve and study them. And so this is a direct quote from Harry Potter. And he was explaining this to Harry. So Dumbledore was explaining it to Harry and he says, it is called a Pensieve, said Dumbledore. I sometimes find, and I'm sure you know the feeling, that I simply have too many thoughts and memories crammed into my mind. At these times, I use the Pensieve. One simply siphons the excess thoughts from one's mind, pours them into the basin and examines them at one's leisure. It becomes easier to spot patterns and links, you understand, when they are in this form. So the wisdom of Harry Potter, huh? Oh, Julie, who knew? And um, if anybody had said we're going to be talking about Harry Potter on this podcast, I would have thought, oh, I don't see the link or how, but I'm all for it. And you've just shown us that. So thank you very much, Julie. I know we'll have Harry Potter fans out there, as am I, and clearly as are you. Thanks once again, Julie, for sharing your wisdom, knowledge, expertise. You've been a a great and generous guest, and I know our listeners will benefit from this podcast and your wisdom. Please remember, everyone, that you can contact Nurse and Midwife Support 24-7, no matter where you are in Australia, 1-800-667-877 or via the website nmsupport.org. You can speak to um, a nurse or a midwife about any issue you need support for, including questions around clinical supervision. So look after yourselves and each other. Your health matters. And I'll speak to you next time.